I'm a child of God. Having my hand. Powerful word of God. To change lives. Heal broken hearts. Save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. And who knows what this says? Reserved for the man of God. Well, praise the Lord. So you won't be distracted while the man of God preaches. Yeah, the holy man of God. Right. Right. We're starting a series, God on Film. And uh, I've wanted to do a series like this for a while. I've seen other churches do it, but I never could quite figure out how it all worked together. So finally, in my little pea brain, it finally figured it out. Um, We're going to look at four different films that are out today uh, and garner some some ideas from those, but also uh, some of the scenes that we'll use then will help us in in our preaching text for that day. Today we're looking at Beauty and the Beast. We've got some artwork for you over here, and uh, we have a couple more coming up. Wonder Woman we will talk about, and then uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, not one, but two. And uh, I appreciate Vanessa bringing these in. I had no idea that they have... uh, movie uh, stuff going on over at University Village. And so uh, she's even got uh, props that she's going to let us use, and it's going to be a lot of fun. The only one she didn't have was Fast and Furious. And so I'm looking for somebody that has one of those cars that will bring those in and put that on our wall for us. That would be great. But today I want to talk about transformation. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 19 as we uh, go through together. But speaking of transformation, oh, uh, by the way, it is, it is uh, movie day. And so in order to have uh, a good experience in your movie that we're going to uh, participate in, uh, Corey is passing out uh, pieces of candy. Uh, my wife asked if we were having popcorn. And I said if she would come and pop it, sure we would. So she opted for little pieces of candy. So you'll get a little piece of candy. If you like milk duds, that's what you can get at the movie theater. These are all candies that you can get at the movie theater. So I just want to make sure that everybody gets one. And, yes, you can eat it while we're going. If uh, if you're getting weak need, go ahead and eat one, and it'll be okay. Patrick and uh, his roommate will take five. Is that be? <laughs> Pat, introduce, Pat, introduce your guest to us, would you? Good to have you again. It's good to see you. It's funny how the kids come home from college in the summer. They've got to have some either clothes washed or food or both. Both. Okay. As Bryant quickly says, both. That's right. Hey, the interesting thing, Cindy and I was in Houston a couple weeks ago, and uh, Bryant's daughter, um, uh, Brianne, is there working at her job. So I texted her to find out where she lived, and she's uh, less than a mile from my son Corey's house. I thought, boy, she's a high roller, man. That's... That's a high roller district out there. Drove by her apartment, but just didn't have time to stop and visit, but uh, we'll, we'll on another trip. But it's, it's amazing. It's just right there close. It's right there close. Speaking of transformation, 
There was a woman who testified to the conversion and transformation in her life that had resulted from her becoming a Christian. She said this, I'm so glad I became a Christian. Before I became a Christian, I used to hate my uncle so much, I vowed I'd never go to his funeral. But now, now that I'm a Christian, well, I'd be happy to go to his funeral anytime. So what we want is that conversion and transformation to have a little bit more uh, punch than that, than our ladies experienced. And sensational conversions we hear about all the time. And they are very inspiring when you hear of some of those. The Prince and the Beauty of the Beast was a pretty awful guy. If you know the story, he overtaxed his people, was very arrogant, full of himself. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds like the President of the United States. <laughs> or any politician in Washington, as a matter of fact. But I want us to see the opening clip of our movie, Beauty and the Beast, and uh, then we'll, we'll proceed on. everything his heart desired. The prince was selfish and unkind. Master, it's time. He taxed the village to fill his castle with the most... not to be deceived by appearances. To reveal a beautiful enchantress. Punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast. She placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived to the people they loved. But the rose she had was truly an enchanted rose. If he could learn to love another and earn that and lost all hope, for who could ever learn to love a beast? Who could ever learn to love a beast? The prince reminds me of ourselves before we found Christ. Amen? We weren't lovely. We weren't nice. We were full of sin. And sin causes you to do some incredibly stupid things. I'll just use the word. Foolish would be a better word, but let's call it stupid. Because most of the time it is. Sin will lead us astray. And especially when we're full of ourselves. 
And so our text today is going to show us a notorious sinner whose name was Saul. And his name didn't stay Saul because of what happened to him in our story. But he was well known, especially to individuals who were converting to Christ and were living and walking the walk of God. And normally when someone of renown becomes a believer or a Christian, there is great skepticism or amazement, as the case may be. Alan Redpath, a longtime preacher who passed away, and he's an author, also said it best this way, The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. No person, no matter how bright, how sincere, how submissive, comes to Christ and instantly becomes a mature. It's an epic. It takes time. It takes time. Becoming a mature Christian is a lifelong process. But it begins at the moment of salvation. That's the good news. Is that there is a beginning point for that growing and that maturing in Christ. Few, if any, conversions in the history of Christianity will compare to what transpired on the Damascus Road with Saul. Acts records it in chapter 8 and verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. That's what he thought he was called of God to do. And when Paul appeared before King Agrippa, he shared his testimony in uh, Acts 26. When he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 10. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Verse 11. Many a time went from, uh, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. Verse 15 is our memory verse. But in verse 13 he tells Timothy, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. So let's be inspired by Saul's transformation story as we witness this unexpected turning point in his life. The ninth chapter of Acts begins abruptly with Saul on a murderous Rampage toward Damascus. He charged out of Jerusalem with the fury of Alexander the Great sweeping across Persia. Saul's blood was boiling. He was close to being completely out of control. If you were a follower of Jesus living anywhere near Jerusalem, you did not want to hear Saul's knock at your door. Pick it up with me in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way with the men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So why would Paul go to Damascus some 100 miles north of Jerusalem? Well, it was common knowledge that a significant number of Jews lived in in Damascus. So it makes sense that the Jewish Christians, when they were scattered, would end up in Damascus among such a population of Jewish people. 
So Saul had devised this aggressive plan to go and to find them and to drag the Christians back to Jerusalem to stand trial. But the good news is God had a different plan. Pick it up in verses 3 and 4. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In an instant, Saul's murderous journey with ferocious momentum came to a divine halt. And the Bible says in verse 3, suddenly a light from heaven flashed. You know, isn't that the way the Lord works? Instantly? He works instantly. Brother Ralph was telling me this morning that he got a little mixed up on his days and showed up here at church yesterday, all dressed up, ready to go. And wondered why in the world these people wait. Nobody called me to tell me church was closed. I was glad he was a day early, aren't you? He'd probably get mad at me for telling that story. I've done things like that, haven't you? I went to a doctor's appointment one time. And they said, you're not scheduled till tomorrow. I said, well, since I'm here. <laughs> yeah, right. They're going to work you in? Mm-hmm. But that's the way the Lord works. It, it, usually it's instantly. Usually it's a flash. Usually it's something pow, like that. In an instant, He grabs you. <clears throat> in an instant, He gets hold of our heart. God gives no announcement, no warning time ahead. Saul had received no prior alert to say, Hey, Saul, watch out tomorrow. Going to blind you. And amazingly, God's timing is always right. Amen? God remained silent and restrained to the moment when He interrupted Saul's world and life. That's how it is often happens to us too. Without warning. Life can take a sudden and unexpected turn. It could be a heart attack, an auto accident, a loss of a job, a halting diagnosis from a doctor. For more than three decades, Saul had thought he was in control of his own life. He had money, power, prestige. Everybody knew who he was. And they were afraid of him because of who he was. He had a plan. He had a plan for his life. He was checking off his accomplishments all along the way. But on his way to make an even greater name for himself, God stops him in his tracks. And for the first time in Saul's proud, self-sustained life, he found himself dependent. Much like our prince from the movie, as the uninvited guest cast a spell upon him and the castle and all the inhabitants. Not only was Saul knocked to the ground, he was blinded by that light. What group sang that song? Blinded by the light. Anybody know? I'm sorry? Oh, wow. I didn't think anybody know. I should have known better. It comes from a truck driver. Got it. Okay. Yep. Oh. Vanessa? Little Vanessa. She said what? Our, our sweet little Vanessa? Okay. Not only was he knocked to the ground, blinded by this light from heaven, his other senses, however, became heightened. 
He heard this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I can just imagine the wheels turning in Saul's mind. Yes, I've been persecuting people. I've been persecuting Christians. But who is this person speaking to me? I want you to notice one thing here. Saul heard the one speaking and knows his name. Or the one speaking knows Saul's name is what I meant to say. The one speaking knows Saul's name. What that tells you and me is that he knows you and me also. In the book of Isaiah, it says that he holds all of us in the palm of his hand. Isn't that awesome? But he knows Saul and he calls him by name. And a lot of people have said, when he answers in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? They were saying, well, he knew that was Jesus. I don't think so. That's just my opinion, but I don't think so. I think he was being sincere and returning a good address to, like we would say, is that you, sir? But he was saying, is that you, Lord? Who are you? Who are you? Because the Greek word that Saul uses is kurios, which is a title of respect and can simply mean Lord or Master, much like we use the word sir. Saul is not only blind, confused, so yes, who are you, sir? And Jesus says in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. No answer could have been more surprising to Saul than that answer. The Jesus whom Saul thought was dead was indeed alive. The Jesus whom Saul thought was the devil was indeed a divine. The Jesus whom Saul thought was mistaken was indeed the Messiah. The Jesus whom Saul had hated and denied was Savior and Lord. And in that instance, Saul of Tarsus went from unbeliever to believer. In that instant, the journey to Damascus and the entire course of his life was transformed, including his name from Saul to Paul. He was transformed. He was changed. Pick it up with me in verse 6. Because the Bible tells us what happened next. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. They led him, so they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, I don't know about you, but I want you to picture the next three days in Saul's life. Picture him shaking his head in startled disbelief as he prays and he fasts, waiting for God's instructions, not aware of what was going on, still confused. And the story in Acts 9 turns to a Christian named Ananias whom God recruits to go and minister to Saul. To say that Ananias was reluctant to go is an understatement. After hearing God's plan for Saul, Ananias hesitantly, but does, go. Look at it, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. <clears throat> he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So when Paul is sharing this testimony in Acts 22, he says it this way. 
A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by the Jews living there. He stood there uh, beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. I want you to notice, from both of these accounts, baptism was something that was needing to happen. When baptism happened, change came. He rose to walk in a different way. He rose to be a different man. Transformation took place. Now, the baptism means nothing if you haven't changed inside your heart. You can go in wet, or go in dry, come out wet, and no change. In fact, there's several that I've met that have gone in dry and come out wet. Especially the younger you are and you're baptized, the harder it is to maintain that the rest of your life. Now, I'm not saying wait till you're an old man to get baptized. The sooner the better. But there ought to be a measurable change in you once you've done this. Ought to be measurable change. Saul obviously had a belief in Jesus. I mean, how could he not believe with this experience all around him? But it's obvious that Saul was repentant and willing to obey God and whatever he instructed. He didn't hesitate. He arose and went and was baptized, called on the name of the Lord. And in fact, in Acts 26, when Paul was giving his defense before King Agrippa, he included an interesting detail from his blinding encounter with Jesus. Recalling the words Jesus spoke to him, Paul said, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, it's an unusual word picture, kicking against the goads. But it's filled with meaning. It's a rural expression that's common in ancient Greek and Latin literature. It comes from the practice of farmers goading their oxen in the fields. Goads were typically made from slender pieces of wood that were blunt on one end and pointed on the other. Farmers would use the pointed end to urge the stubborn ox into motion. But occasionally the ox would kick against the goad. And the more the ox kicked against the goad, the more likely the sharp point would puncture the skin and cause even more pain. So what did Jesus mean when he said to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads? Perhaps it's an indication that God had been prodding Saul for a long time. And Saul, suddenly, his sudden conversion was perhaps that tipping point and all that goading that God was doing. Charles Swindoll, great Christian author and writer and preacher, suggests that these goads, three goads that the Lord used to bring Saul to a place of repentant transformation uh, might be used at this time. Let me give those to you. The first goad in Saul's life was Jesus' life and words. I believe that the words and the works of Jesus haunted Saul. He was a zealous Pharisee. I'm certain that Paul or Saul had, had heard Jesus teach and preach during his ministry. Once any of us have seriously investigated the life of Jesus and His teachings, there's no way to escape them. They work on us deep in our conscience. The second goat in Saul's life was Stephen's peaceful death. You know the story. Saul held the coats and the clothes of, and the robes of those that stoned Stephen. 
And it wasn't the fact that Stephen died that affected Saul. It was the way Stephen died. Much like we're seeing today in the Middle East when ISIS comes and beheads the Christians or slits their throat, they look up to heaven and are in praise of Jesus even at the moment the sword is swung or the knife is pulled. I remember the story of the woman. They're always told, deny Jesus, embrace Islam. And they always say, I will not deny my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this woman's, the testimony of this woman's beheading was then she looked up and she saw Jesus, I think, because she says, Jesus. And then they chopped her head off. It's much like when Stephen died. Remember what the Bible says in that story? It says Jesus stood up from the throne. He was showing honor and praise to Stephen for his faithfulness, even to the point of death. That haunted Saul. Because Stephen wasn't afraid. He was ready. The third goad in Saul's life was the courageous faith of Christians. Saul couldn't escape noticing the courage of the Christians that he took prisoner. They didn't fight and argue. They just went. If they were beaten, they didn't complain. They took it. Believers he viciously apprehended didn't resist. They were undaunted in their courage in the face of death. And I think that goaded Saul. Saul wanted them to be afraid and yet they showed fearlessness in the face of God and in the very face of evil and death. The question is, are you going to be ready for that? Will you be able to stand in those moments? I have to believe that in some unguarded moments while deep in thought or perhaps while on that dark walk to Damascus, Saul found himself kicking against those goads and Jesus' words and His works and Stephen's peaceful death and the Christian's courage just kept filling him, filling him and haunting him and bothering him. He just simply could not put all of it out of his mind. It's really what happens to you and me when we come to the Lord. God has been prodding and prodding and prodding our stubborn pride our, and just like the ox we were just like Saul had our heels dug in and by golly I'm not going to change you can't make me change and I'm not going to change I'll show you I'm in charge here day after day Saul kicked against those goes until he finally finally got the message when are you going to finally get the message I preacher, I heard a message a long time ago. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I've been a Christian for 2,500 years. If you've been a Christian longer than a day, and it's not obvious to those around you, you've got a problem. You've got a big problem. Why do we have empty seats in our church today? You answer that question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but you answer the question. Why do we have empty seats? Didn't bring anybody. Nobody's bringing anybody. 
Everybody's waiting for somebody else to do it. Everybody's waiting. When are we going to... We. It's plural. When are we going to do that? When are we going to start bringing people? When are we going to speak so well about our church that people got to come just check it out? If you're on social media, why don't you just tell everybody about how great our church is? Oh, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you don't like your church. Well, if you don't like it, let's change it. Let's do something different. We hung these posters up here on the wall. Somebody asked me, said, do you think somebody will get mad because we hung posters on the wall? Really? Really? We've got pictures of Jesus hanging on the wall. We've got crosses everywhere. We've got flags in the front. What's, what's the deal with posters? Well, they're secular, brother. We shouldn't have that. Really? Hmm. See, Saul needed to be converted. Saul needed to be transformed. And I want to go back to our movie. Because the beast needed transformation. Let's see the last part of the... I'll never leave you again. I'm afraid it's my turn to leave.
Garçon tries to kill him, ends up killing himself. And the idea there is the rose petal, the last one fell under the glass, and that meant he would die, unless someone who f- would fall in love with him and restore him. And as you saw in the movie, Belle, just an old street urchin, said she loved him and then she kissed him and then the transformation the curse was lifted and you saw the whole city change you saw joy return and so I say to you that when you find Christ you'll finally find someone who loves you you'll finally find someone who will give themselves up for you there's no greater love than that in fact he's already done that for you all we have to do is accept it and respond to it and we can experience the transformation not only like the beast in the movie but like the Saul who became Paul in our text when he finally surrendered He found the joy of the Lord. So if you've been a Christian a long time, hallelujah. Maybe you need to renew that commitment. Maybe you need to renew that faith. We sing a hymn of invitation, and we invite you to respond. And the hymn of invitation is, He touched me. Has He? If He's really touched you, why don't you show that? If you need to make a decision today, would you do it as we stand and sing together? 